Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. If you don't already, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or elsewhere, and please leave us a nice review. Today, is Russia on the brink of historic military defeat in Ukraine? In the last week, a dramatic Ukrainian counteroffensive has pushed Russian forces back in the critical northeastern part of the country around the city of Kharkiv. And the Ukrainians have recaptured vast areas of territory seized by Russia earlier in the war. All this, of course, while in other parts of the country, particularly in the south, the Ukrainians are also pushing back against Russian forces. The move has shaken up what was looking like a stalemate in the war and is even raising hopes that the Ukrainians may be able actually to inflict an astonishing defeat on Vladimir Putin. Let's talk about these latest developments. I'm joined by Fred Kagan. Fred's one of our sharpest analysts and historians of all things military. He's written widely on military history and contemporary war. He's been a professor at West Point and an advisor to the U.S. and other governments on military strategy. And he was highly influential in developing the successful surge that helped turn the tide in the Iraq war more than 15 years ago. He's now director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, and he joins me now. Fred, thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Fred, give us a sense here. You've been following this very, very closely, the war in Ukraine since the Russians invaded in February. These developments in the last week, particularly in the north, particularly around Kharkiv, with this Ukrainian push that seems to have punched through Russian lines, sent Russians retreating and recaptured vast swathes of territory there. Give us a sense, if you would, of how significant this push has been in the last week. Well, it's extremely significant. It's the most significant development since the Ukrainians defeated the Russian attacks around Kyiv and drove the Russians to retreat from Western Ukraine and try to focus on the east. And in many respects, it's more significant even than that. The Russians around Kyiv had reached a point of culmination. It was clear that they were not going to be able to take the city. And Putin made the decision to withdraw before the Ukrainians could really get a major counteroffensive rolling. Here, the Russians were holding a line and the Ukrainians launched a counteroffensive. They had the initiative. They chose where the fight would be. They chose when it would be. They set the terms and they drove the Russians into an uncontrolled and very disorderly retreat. So it's quite a remarkable accomplishment for the Ukrainians going over to counteroffensive on the scale and achieving such success on their own terms. Where have they got to now? What's our latest understanding? They've retaken some of these key cities around Kharkiv. I think I'm right in saying they haven't yet pushed into the the territory that Russia has long controlled or Russia's allies in Ukraine have long controlled in the Donbass and Luhansk and Donetsk. Where have they got to and what do you expect to happen in the coming days? So the battle line as of yesterday was along the Oskil River, which is some kilometers to the west of the Luhansk Oblast border. It's many, many miles east of where it had been. It, it's been a very dramatic counteroffensive. The most important things that have happened are that the Russians withdrew all of their forces from near the city of Kharkiv, and they had been retaining forces close enough to the city to use tactical artillery to shell the city. They pulled all of those forces back, and the Ukrainians have pushed to the international border near the city, which means that the Russians can only attack the city now with long-range systems, which 
should reduce the amount of damage they can inflict on Ukraine's second largest city, which of course now is, is no longer in any danger of a ground attack. So that's an extremely important development. The other location that the Ukrainians liberated that's extremely important is the town of Izum. And Izum has been a very strategic location because the Russians had taken it as part of an effort to drive southeast-ish and cut off a large number of Ukrainian troops in a defensive line strung out in an arc that ran from Izum to the southeast and then back around to the southwest again to near Donetsk city. And the Ukrainian recapture of Izum has ended that threat entirely. And it's ended the threat in particular to the larger city of Slavyansk and other important cities uh, south of Izum, which is also important because the Ukrainians had concentrated a lot of defenders around those cities. So now that those cities are no longer under threat, the Ukrainians can contemplate using those troops in counteroffensive operations of their choosing. And that may allow them, if they choose, to pursue the counteroffensive even harder. What happened here, Fred? These lines have been pretty well entrenched now for months, I mean, since the early weeks of the Russian invasion. And yet now, as I say, we've seen this dramatic push through by the Ukrainians. What happened? There's been talk of maybe this was sort of a feint by the Ukrainians to redeploy more towards the south. And we can talk a little bit about what's going on in the south too, and that somehow this took the Russians by surprise. Why did the Russian lines seem to yield so quickly in the face of this onslaught? So I and my colleagues at the Institute for the Study of War, which has been tracking this, we're not surprised that this counteroffensive was very successful. We've been observing and commenting for some weeks the way that the Russians have been weakening the lines in the area that the Ukrainians attacked. And the Russians have been doing that for a couple of reasons. One is because the Ukrainians have been, everyone has been talking about a counteroffensive in the South. The Ukrainians have been preparing for it, and then the Ukrainians did launch it. And it's not a feint. It is a counteroffensive, and we can talk about that more if you like. But the Russians rightly recognize that the terrain that they hold in southern Ukraine is strategically vital for Ukraine and absolutely worth defending if they can. And so they've pulled forces away from this sector to try to reinforce in, in advance of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south. That's one dynamic. But the second dynamic is a little harder to explain. And that is that the Russians have been continuing offensive operations in other parts of the east, in Donetsk Oblast, around the city of Bakhmut, and also increasingly around, in the areas around the Russian-held city of Donetsk City. And these offensive operations make very little sense. They are ostensibly aimed at accomplishing Putin's objective of taking all of Donetsk Oblast, it's been months since there was any reasonable prospect that they would be able to do that. And so they reflect just a certain bovinity in the Russian approach to this war. That is, Putin ordered us to take Donetsk, we're going to take Donetsk, whether it makes any sense or not. And that's drawn forces away from the sectors the Ukrainians attacked and from other sectors into offensive operations that are just militarily mindless. You said at the beginning this was a very significant and perhaps the most significant development in the war since the Russian failure to take Kiev early on, maybe even more significant than that. Again, there's a lot of commentary here in the US and in the West that this might represent a turning point. People hesitate even to think in these terms, perhaps, but could suggest that Ukraine is now well-placed to essentially seize back all of the territory that Russia's placed. What's your sense of where this leaves the balance of advantage right now in the war? Let me put it this way. The Ukrainians have the initiative in this war. 
And that's extremely important. That means that the Ukrainians are largely deciding where the fights will be and on what terms. And the Russians are largely reacting. That's a very good place to be where the Ukrainians are. And it has been a significant shift over the past couple of months that the Ukrainians have really been able to seize the initiative from the Russians as the Russian attacks have culminated. The forecast cone here is wide, Jerry, and it's worth talking a little bit about, you know, what lies on either side of that forecast cone. By default, one expects offensive operations of any variety to culminate at a certain point. I don't know whether the Ukrainian counterattack in Kharkiv has culminated or whether they will continue to advance there. But normally one would expect that it would culminate at a certain point and they would have to stop and go over to the defensive for a time. It's hard to say exactly where. So that would be the sort of default expectation in the north. In the south, the Ukrainians' attack has not culminated and they are continuing to make gains and set conditions to make more gains. So I think it's reasonable to expect that we will see progress in western Kherson Oblast, that is to say the part of Kherson that's on the west bank of the Dnipro River where the Ukrainians really have set very good conditions, but the Russians have concentrated a lot of force. But on the other side, on the very optimistic side of the forecast cone, the Russian military in Ukraine is incredibly fragile and very vulnerable. We can talk more about the factors that go into that, but there are reasons why the relatively poor and thin troops in Kharkiv collapsed as they did, but those factors are not confined to Kharkiv. So it is conceivable that a series of Ukrainian counteroffensives following this one could fundamentally just break the will of the Russian army in Ukraine to continue to fight and actually give the Ukrainians the opportunity to retake large swaths of strategically important territory. Now, I'm not predicting that. I'm saying that that's on the most optimistic side of the forecast cone. But it, it is there. What's been the Russian response so far? We're now almost a week into this counteroffensive. Russians seem to have fallen back quite significantly along those lines. We saw a sort of brief or sort of standoff approach, I think, from the Russians when they attacked, you know, sort of facilities with sort of long-range missiles and whatever. But they don't seem so far as we can tell, right, to have pushed back, to have launched, as it were, a counter-counteroffensive. What's the Russian response? It's a little surprising, honestly, Jerry. Um, not only are they not launching a counteroffensive, but... We don't even see them so far rushing forces to the new line to try to hold it. On the contrary, we're actually seeing reports, granted largely from Ukrainians at this point, that Russian forces in the rear are um, in Kharkiv and in Luhansk also are beginning to flee. At least some of the Russian forces that have been pulled out of Kharkiv Oblast seem to be going to the south rather than going to try to defend the new line. It is both surprising and unsurprising. Now, I want to be careful with this. It's very early days and we don't know where all the Russian forces that have been pulled out will go. And we may see reinforcements turn up here. But because Putin has made such a big deal about seizing all of Luhansk Oblast and the Ukrainians are now threatening it. And in fact, in the southernmost part of the Oblast, they've actually started to make gains into the Oblast again you would think that he would prioritize defending it, but he doesn't seem to be right now. On the other hand, it's possible that he actually does understand that how strategically vital it is for him to hold the terrain he has in the South, whatever his propaganda line might have been. And he's just focused on recouping combat power to do that. So it's early days yet to see exactly what he's going to do, but 
the behavior is not quite what we would have expected so far based on what his rhetoric and the ostensible justification of the war had been. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Fred Kagan on the war in Ukraine. Stay with us. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. We're talking about Ukraine, Russia, and the development of the war there with Fred Kagan, military historian and analyst. There's always been concern that the more Ukraine advanced, the more gains Ukraine made, the the harder it got for Russia, that Russia would escalate. We've all talked about this, the threat of you know weapons of mass destruction, in particular tactical nuclear weapons, as we know, is part of Russian military doctrine, you know, so-called to de-escalate kind of approach. Do you have any reason at all to think that that might now be looming? Sure. It's always been a possibility. And I think, allow me to emphasize that for a minute. The Ukrainians accepted the risk that the Russians might use nuclear weapons the moment they chose to fight the invasion. The risk that Putin might escalate to using nuclear weapons against Ukraine has been present from the moment the Ukrainians chose to fight a nuclear power that invaded them. And the Ukrainians understand that. Continuing to run that risk is a decision that the Ukrainians need to make, and it's important that we not make it for them. And I, I say that because I think there's not enough rigor in the Western discussion about this, where some people seem to conflate the risk of Russian use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine with the inevitable you know, move from that to a global thermonuclear war. Mm. And that's not correct. I think the odds that Putin would get into a nuclear war with the West are vanishingly small. But the odds that he might use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine are higher. Even so, I think it's important neither to overstate nor to understate that risk. You'd have to ask yourself the question, under what circumstances would Putin plausibly be able to tell himself that if he uses tactical nuclear weapons and runs all of the risks that are associated with that, that it would achieve a decisive effect in the war? It's not actually that easy to come up with a list of circumstances that would make that a reasonable proposition. So he might, but I don't think that he's particularly close to that yet. And I also don't think that he really has internalized or will internalize for a while the degree to which Ukraine, which is a country whose existence he doesn't even recognize as being valid, is actually defeating him conventionally and he can't do anything about it. I don't think he's come to accept that yet. So I don't think this is particularly imminent right now, but it's always a risk and it does increase as the Ukrainians succeed, of course. That's a very interesting point that you think that right now he doesn't need to escalate. So what options does he have then? I mean, we've already talked about there's so far no evidence of a significant conventional counteroffensive. Does he have the, I mean, there's been a lot of, again, reporting, and you've written a lot about this too, about the quality of the Russian armed forces, a lot of conscripts, a lot of very, very inexperienced Met soldiers. They've lost a remarkable number of officers. They've lost a remarkable number of troops overall. What more can he do? He obviously does have additional reinforcements, I suppose, if he wants to do it. I mean, does he go for all-out mobilization? Short of escalating in the way you think is unlikely, what are his options? Well, look, in the real world, his options are actually quite limited. I don't actually think he can order a general mobilization for various technical reasons. I mean, he could order it, but I don't think the Russian military could actually implement it. And if he did, I do think that he would put the survivalist regime at stake in a very way that would be very worrisome for him, which is why he's been 
desperately trying to avoid doing anything like that. In the real world, there is not a way that Putin can generate a military force in the next six to 12 months that could turn the tide of this war. That's extraordinarily implausible, at least as long as the West continues to support Ukraine. But it's not clear to me that he thinks that that's true. And that's what matters is what he thinks. And I think he still believes that he has options. And they've been recruiting volunteer battalions. He's been moving more and more to irregular formations, relying on the Wagner Group and various other paramilitary organizations to bring forces to bear. And he seems to be trusting them more than he trusts his own Ministry of Defense and uniformed military, which is generating a whole other interesting dynamic within Russia. As long as he thinks that he has choices like that, he is likely to continue to pursue them. But I don't think that any of them are likely actually to allow him to turn this conflict around. However, I think he thinks that he has one real option that he has never yet tried, which is crushing Europe with an energy embargo in a, throughout a winter. And I think that he probably believes that if he forces Europe to face the full fury of a complete winter cycle with no Russian energy, that European will to support Ukraine will collapse. I happen to think he's probably wrong about that, but I think that that's an experiment that he's determined to run before he goes to any kind of more radical solutions, either accepting defeat or escalating in some other way. So in a way, we're in a war here where the time factor is very important, that if he can somehow avoid, you know, outright sort of military defeat for the next couple of months, say, until the European winter arrives in earnest, and he can then really tighten the vise around European energy supplies, he then is expecting that the will of the Europeans will fold and they'll sue for peace. Is that what you think is a key part of his thinking right now? I do. I do think that he imagines that, but that's all predicated on actually him holding enough of Ukraine to be worthwhile for him. And that's becoming a very open question as these Ukrainian counteroffensives proceed. And I also think that there's a relationship between European will and Ukrainian success. It was one thing for Putin to imagine that with the war appearing to be stalemated, crushing Europe in an energy vice could lead to a European surrender on Ukraine's behalf. If the Ukrainians have actually retaken a lot of territory and shown the ability to win, I think that the Europeans are much more likely to be willing to weather a tough winter if it seems as if doing that might allow them to get to a Ukrainian victory at the end. So it's a very complicated game for him to play. And it does rely on doing something in Ukraine that I'm not at all sure that he will be able to do militarily. Which is what? Which is which is holding on to enough of Ukraine to, to matter in this calculation. What role has the Western military support played in this latest offense, particularly obviously the United States? The United States has given far and away the lion's share of military equipment to the Ukrainians, in particular these, you know, these high Mars missiles that people have talked about. As far as you can tell from this latest offensive, what combination of US intelligence and military and logistical support, what role has that played? US and Western support has been absolutely necessary, but not sufficient to the Ukrainian successes. Ukraine would probably not still be in this fight without the Western support and the Western support of all varieties from artillery shells and just artillery tubes to the higher end capabilities such as javelins and HIMARS and so forth has been absolutely essential and uh, no one would say otherwise. The Ukrainians have used that material brilliantly and they have really optimized the relatively small number of high-end systems that we've provided them, husbanding them 
and directing them at really decisive points to set conditions for very intelligently planned and designed campaigns. So it's very important for us all to recognize that on the one hand, our aid and support is absolutely vital and Ukraine cannot continue without it. On the other hand, the Ukrainians have shown themselves worthy of it, both in terms of their courage and willingness to fight and die, but also in terms of the skill with which they have been wielding it. And it's been a very effective partnership that has done something very important for the United States and for NATO. And I'd like to expand on this for a moment, please, if you don't mind. This is not an altruistic undertaking for the United States and NATO. We are not doing this just because it's good for Ukraine. That would be a good reason to do it, in my opinion. But that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because Putin has given us an opportunity to fight a war that, frankly, he's been planning to fight anyway, not on NATO territory and not against NATO troops, because he has been preparing to attack NATO. That was to be next on his list. Where? The Baltics? Absolutely. The Baltics. Absolutely. 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 He has been preparing to attack the Baltics. And by the way, his pre-war speeches also made it clear that he was unwilling to accept the expansion of NATO into Poland. Romania, Bulgaria, any of those states as well. And he was determined to roll that back as well. So this was meant to be for him a rehearsal and a strength gaining exercise to facilitate a subsequent threat and then possibly attack against NATO. And we have been given the opportunity to have Ukraine defeat and wreck the Russian military without having any of the war on NATO territory and without having NATO soldiers or American soldiers die in it. In that respect, Jerry, there isn't a better way that we could possibly be spending defense dollars than helping Ukraine win a war so that we will not have to think about fighting it for a very, very long time. You obviously reject the idea that we in the West are somehow responsible for this because it was provocative to encourage the idea of NATO membership for certain countries, particularly Ukraine, that we have been provoking Russia with encouraging Ukraine to turn to the West when it's, you know, historically been so close to Russia. You just reject all that. You think that Putin's objective here was a wider expansionism to roll back NATO, essentially, and not a kind of defensive move to embrace Ukraine, to keep Ukraine within the Russian embrace. I'm terribly sorry. I hope my face didn't hurt your fist. <laughs> but, you know, there are serious people have said this. People like Bob Gates said, you know, we went too far. Absolutely. And I, look, I think there's lots of debate and discussion that one could have about how we handled the 90s and how we handled NATO expansion and all of that sort of stuff. Those are absolutely valid debates and discussions we could have. But look, let's just carry that forth, shall we? Putin has every right to be pissed off about what happened in the 90s. He has every right to be aggravated about the expansion of NATO and to feel, actually, not truthfully that NATO lied to Russia, which isn't actually true, or that he was betrayed in some way, or even to feel that these things are threats. Those are all within his rights. He has every right to have whatever opinions he wants to have about whether Ukraine should exist as an independent state, whether there's Ukrainian ethnicity. He has a right to all of those opinions. What he doesn't have a right to do is to invade and launch a genocidal war. So the problem that I have with that argument is that one can recognize the various reasons that Russia might be aggravated, but one also has to recognize that there simply isn't a world in which an appropriate and acceptable response to all of that is to launch a genocidal war. That's the problem that I have with that argument. So did NATO 
provoke this war? Absolutely not. Did NATO expansion aggravate Russia? Sure. But there's another issue here also, which is Putin's fundamental argument is that states of the former Soviet Union have qualified and truncated sovereignty. That's what it means when he says that he has a sphere of influence that must be respected and that he can dictate what alliances the states of the former Soviet Union can join. That means that they're not fully sovereign states. But here's the problem. Russia recognized them as fully sovereign states. And Putin's biggest problem, the person who actually made the mistakes and betrayed Russia from this perspective, was in the first instance, the late Gorbachev, who allowed the Soviet Union to collapse, and then Putin's own mentor, Boris Yeltsin, who recognized all of these changes. If Putin wishes to feel betrayed by anyone, those are the people he should feel betrayed by because they created the international world order and the recognition of these states that made what he did absolutely illegal and unjustifiable. I want to conclude with some wider observations about where this war is going and how it ends. But back to the situation on the ground and particularly in the south of the country, there has again been, in addition to the, this dramatic move in the north and the northeast, there's been this Ukrainian push in and around Kherson and that they're on sort of the Black Sea littoral, which Russia largely controls uh, large parts of it anyway. And there's been some suggestion that maybe this was a feint. You think that's it's not a feint, it's actually it's a real counteroffensive. Can you just tell us how that's going and a, a Russian lines holding up any stronger there than they are in the in the north? So the Ukrainians have been working for many months to set conditions in the south by disrupting the Russians' ability to get any kind of supplies and reinforcements across the Dnipro River. And the Ukrainians have been very clever in using weapon systems really not well suited for this purpose to deprive the Russians of the use of the two major bridges that cross the Dnipro River and the, the, a couple of other smaller ones. And they've also been attacking Russian ammunition depots and fuel depots and command posts all throughout there. I think it was on August 29th they announced the counteroffensive down there, and they have launched a multi-pronged counteroffensive that has gained ground. Ukrainian sources say they've taken 500 square kilometers in that area, and our own calculations are similar to that. So they've definitely gained ground. The Russian forces in that area are much more professional. Uh, there's a lot of Russian airborne troops down there, for example, and those are the elite of their forces, such as they are. There's a much larger concentration in a much smaller area than there was around Kharkiv. And the Russians have been preparing defenses in depth for quite some time. So that offensive operation that the Ukrainians are conducting is moving understandably more slowly and more deliberately, but it is moving. And we are seeing the Ukrainians make progress. And yesterday, I and the ISW team were able to report the Russians appear to have abandoned the last major settlement between the Ukrainians and the northwestern outskirts of Kherson city. And that tells us that those Russian forces feel threatened by a Ukrainian advance. I have to use that kind of language because in contrast to what we've seen in Kharkiv, we're getting very little coverage of what's going on in Kherson. Uh, the Ukrainians have asked everybody not to say anything about it. And uh, for the most part, people have been abiding by that. And the Russians, of course, are not terrifically interested in narrating their defeats down there either, although they've been doing some of that. So the information environment is making it hard for us to see exactly what's going on. But there is unquestionably a Ukrainian counteroffensive that is continuing. And I think that we will be getting news from down there over the coming weeks that will be very promising. How feasible is it to imagine that this war now unfolds in a way in which 
Ukraine really, really does have the upper hand and is able to push Russian forces essentially out of the country, certainly out of the lines that were there before February 24th, out of the country. But perhaps even, you know, to push them out of those areas that their proxies have occupied since 2014, that's, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk, and even conceivably the Crimea. How serious is the potential for a complete rout, essentially, of the Russians and a complete expulsion of the Russians from the territory of from what, what is recognized by the West as the territory of Ukraine? It's very real. That is a very realistic possibility. Including Crimea? Crimea is always the hardest thing to see how the Ukrainians pull off because it's just so easy to defend. There's a narrow neck of land that connects it to the mainland and the Russians would really fundamentally have to just break and flee it. Now, I could imagine circumstances in which that would happen, but I wouldn't bet a ruble on it one way or the other. I think it's possible, but I won't even begin to try to call that. But in terms of recovering all of, shall we say, mainland Ukraine, it's very possible. I have no question that the Russian military at this point is weak enough that the Ukrainians could defeat it and that there isn't anything Putin could do, at least conventionally, to stop it. What I don't know is what capability the Ukrainians have. And another key variable here is whether the West will have the will to continue to provide them the wherewithal to do it. I think, based on what I'm seeing, that the Ukrainians probably do have the capability. And I also think that the West probably will continue to have the will, especially the more it looks like the Ukrainians can do this. I think the West will want to and also feel obliged to help. So I think this is a very realistic possibility, Jerry, and it's what we absolutely should be doing everything in our power to try to make happen, because nothing better could happen for the world, let alone Ukraine than to have the Russians have initiated this absolutely unjustified invasion and be, have been defeated completely in the process. Do you think that is our objective? It's always seemed to me that our objective has been a little unclear and, and obviously with a big, enormous NATO alliance of so different countries, probably to some extent have different objectives. And we've heard in the last few weeks, even some indications from some Europeans that Macron and France in particular talking about the dangers of warmongering, uh, the Germans have been, seem to have been a little bit wobbly. But do you think that is now... The Biden administration and the NATO objective is actually now, uh, and that it's seen as a reasonable objective to actually push the Russians out of Ukraine? Well, the Biden administration, to its great credit, has been very clear that this is its objective all along. This is the explicit position of the Biden administration, and they repeat it on a regular basis. They actually haven't wobbled on that in formal public statements of their policy. So the concern about where the Biden administration is comes from what people are saying in background and off the record and various other concerns, but they haven't changed their formal policy and they're generally acting on it. So I don't think that we should spend a lot of time at this point sort of trying to look behind President Biden's eyeballs and figure out what this is what he really means, because they really have been remarkably consistent about this. In terms of the Europeans, I do think the Germans go wobbly and then what? You know, Macron calls Putin again because he feels like being humiliated again, since, of course, Putin basically spit in his eye the last time he tried this. And then what? It's not as if this is a NATO operation that a NATO member state could just end. We have basically coalition of the willing. And the only question is whether the states that are working hard on this and still willing will remain willing. I haven't seen any particular indication that any of those states are losing their nerve. So, if you sort of ask, what is the defeat mechanism on NATO's side? That is to say, what has to happen for a break in the ranks in Europe to 
disrupt all of this, well, you know, you could conceivably have the sanctions regime uh, begin to fall apart, which would be very bad. But mainly, you would have to have the Europeans, and especially those that have been contributing to the war effort, break so badly that the U.S. felt that it, it had to surrender to the Russians rather than lose the alliance in some way. It's very hard for me to see that happening, honestly. So I think we shouldn't talk ourselves into too much of a spin about how weak and vulnerable we actually are here, because I'm just not really seeing either the indications or the clear path to that at this point. Finally, Fred, this is a political rather than a military question and not easy to answer, but do you think Putin can survive a military defeat of the sort we've been talking about? I mean, is that the scale of humiliation that would be involved in what we've been talking about? Do you think he could survive that? Yes, of course he can. As you rightly said, an autocrat. Russia is not an oligarchy. People talk about oligarchs in Russia. There are no oligarchs in Russia. An oligarch has an independent power base. No one in Russia has an independent power base. They all derive their power from Putin. I could perfectly well imagine scenarios in which Putin is assassinated or there is a a revolution of various sorts. I think the odds of that have increased considerably from, say, about 1% chance to maybe 5% chance. That's a significant increase, right? But it's still an extraordinarily improbable event. So he certainly can survive it. He would have to make a series of devastatingly bad decisions in terms of how he handles the internal dynamic not to survive it. And he could, but he can survive it. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that also, that, you know, we talk about Putin being backed into a corner and a cornered rat can do desperate things and all of that sort of stuff, all of which might be true, but he isn't cornered. There's no reason for him to be that desperate. And it's really not as if there are forces in Russia that are able to sharpen the knives and are ready to remove him. It remains very hard to see exactly how that happens. So yeah, he can survive being defeated as long as he is willing to recognize that not accepting defeat is more dangerous to him. And I think there are ways of making that clear to him. And I think that's one of the things that we all need to work on. Fred Kagan, military historian, analyst. Thank you very much. That's absolutely terrific exposition of what's going on in Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks for joining us. Please do join again next week and we'll have another deep look into issues that are driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.